You're listening to a podcast of This Positive Life, thebody.com's growing collection of first-person stories from people living with HIV. How did you find out you were HIV positive? Uh, I found out I was HIV positive in 1987 when I went for a blood test for my marriage license in Massachusetts, where I had where I was living at the time, I was perfectly healthy and I wanted to get a clean bill of health. The AIDS test had just come out. It was brand new. I thought, well, I'm healthy. I knew one woman who died of AIDS, but they said she had cancer. Anyway, it scared me enough that I asked to get an AIDS test three months before I was getting married so I could get a clean bill of health, get pregnant, and get on with my life. (laughs) That's how I found out. Three weeks later, my test came back positive, and I was shocked. Did you think that you weren't at risk? I didn't think, I was hoping I wasn't at risk because my high-risk behavior, my unprotected sex years were several years behind me while I was with my fiancé. I didn't think about my fiancé's history. You know, it just wasn't, there wasn't any AIDS education in my brain. There wasn't any AIDS education to be had. The only thing that was around in the 80s were gay men dying of AIDS. I didn't think it wasn't my problem. But when I saw my first friend die of AIDS, who happened to be a woman, it was the hard way to get that education. I got scared. I thought, let's just get a clean bill of health. My whole thing was about getting pregnant after after I got married. I went for the clean stamp, and I didn't get it. I was shocked. Then I was terrified because I could have infected my fiancé, and he was a single parent. I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? Have I taken away this boy's father? It was just the worst. How did you tell him? My fiancé, he knew I was getting a test. We all felt pretty confident that I was fine. I was just neurotic about it, so he just said, just get it out of the way. My parents said, stop worrying, you're fine. Everybody felt that way. I had friends who were also, you know, at risk, who went and got tested, who had pretty hard histories of drug abuse and all kinds of stuff, and they were coming up negative. It was Russian roulette. And so that inspired me to go, everybody around me figured, oh, she's fine, because I was healthy. I had no symptoms. It was 87. This was... It was 87, and you never, ever, ever heard about a woman, ever. My friend who died of AIDS, she was my roommate a couple years before I ended up seeing her in the hospital wasting with dementia. She had high fevers and these red prickly rashes. She was severely fatigued, couldn't get out of bed. I thought she was just being lazy. I would take her to the emergency room when she had these fevers, and the doctor just said she had a flu to go home, drink fluids. No suspect. No suspicion of at all about, you know, maybe these symptoms, maybe we should check her. That was not the thinking. It wasn't in our, any of our consciousness. It just went that way until she died. You know, the sign was on the door that said, caution, body fluids. She was in an isolated room. You had to put on a gown, a mask, and gloves to go in to see her. It was pretty obvious <laughs> that they thought she had an infectious, deadly disease. But nobody said AIDS. Wow. And where was this? 
This was in New York. It was very early on. And her obituary said that she died of a rare cancer. Her mother whispered to me, we know what she had, but we're not going to talk about it. Please make donations to the Cancer Foundation. It was just, shh, don't talk about this. And it was so devastating and frightening. You didn't want to say it. You couldn't think it. When it happened, you just couldn't tolerate. The pain was agonizing. Was that because it was 87, it was invariably fatal? Most people. In that time, if you got a positive test, it was a death sentence. People got diagnosed when they were dying. They didn't get diagnosed ahead of time. and You know, there was none of this world that we live in today. They had just come out with AZT for only a specific group of patients, those that were wasting away, that were hopeless. They would give mega doses of AZT, which were just taken off the shelf because people were screaming, acting up, help, help, get us something. People are dropping like flies. It was gay activism that got the ball rolling. Otherwise, God knows where we'd be today. It's really because of them that we have what we have today. Uh, were you at all active in those years? Once I got my sea legs back, I was living in Boston. I wasn't in New York. I wasn't in my home turf. I was active in counseling and helping others tolerate getting the results that were death sentences. I wanted to help someone else deal with the news that I was handed. I knew I could be of service that way. So that's how my activism took place. I almost say it was kind of feminine of me. I wanted to be the healer, the protector. I wanted to help that way. I was, a f I was very frightened. Let's go back to when you first found out you were HIV positive. Like, what were the first things that you did? Well, when I found out, I found out over the telephone. The doctor told me over the phone. I, I basically hit my knees. I went, hit the floor, uh -huh. shock and horror. The doctor said, you know, could you and your fiancé meet me at the hospital so we can talk about your HIV news and what it all means? I said yes. I started to pray when I got off the phone, like, please, God, help me. I couldn't believe this. And I called my fiancé at work and said, it's really bad news, you need to come home. And he did. I told him, and he was shocked. He locked himself in a room, and he started to scream and cry. And it was just horrifying. Then, like I said, I couldn't even look at his son would come home from school, and I, it was just too, too hard to even look at him. And then we met the doctor at the hospital, like I had said I would. He met us on an AIDS ward. I knew this is the beginning of the end. We walked down that long corridor, sat in an empty room, looked at the bare mattress and wondered who had just died. When will this bed be mine? Am I going to have dementia, lose my eyesight? When is this all going to happen? I asked the doctor those questions, and he had no answers. He stood up and shook my hand, wished me good luck, and he walked out of the room. I knew that was the end. So he said, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know. know. He said, take good care of your health. He stood up, shook my hand, and left. When you walked down that long corridor, what did you see? I saw uh, very little nursing staff because no one wanted to work on the floor with AIDS patients. Um, I saw 
people, you know, sitting up in their beds, some of them, everybody on IVs. It looked like death row. You hear the moaning. You hear people calling for help just for a bedpan. Nobody was coming in to help anybody. It was just, I don't know that anyone today realizes the horror that that was and the shame that this government never stepped up to the plate. And this is what I saw happening in the 80s and the 90s, you know, up till 1996. It was downhill. It's never good news to find out that you're positive. It's always difficult. But the history is so important to know because those days were just horrifying. So what happened after this meeting with the, the physician? What did you do next? That very, that very day when we went to the main floor of the hospital, left that ward, my fiancé had to be tested. I mean, we were terrified. All of a sudden, we were learning education the hard way. I sat next to him and realized, oh, my God, what have I done? He's got to get an AIDS test. He didn't have any qualms about it. I mean, he was a real man about it. He went downstairs, had his blood drawn. It was just, those were then the worst three weeks of my life. And I say three weeks because that's what it took in those days while you waited with bated breath on what your results were. Am I going to live or am I going to die? That's what those test results meant. Whenever his last exposure was, he would still have to wait another three months. First of all, we were engaged, and our wedding day was three months away. Wedding invitations are in the mail, wedding gown being made. So I went from the happiest time in my life to the worst possible scenario. It was so bad, it was a joke. The only thing we could do together, God bless him and I, was that we would la- we'd look at each other and like not laugh like hysterically, but just like in shock, like, this is so bad. This is insane. We looked at our bedroom and we kept saying, we could, both of us had the same vision, a coffin. It was that bad. It just, it was that bad. Then I had to go back to New York to continue my wedding plans, waiting for his results. He didn't call me for three weeks. I really thought, this is it. He's going to leave me at the altar. This is over. But you were still making your plans. I was still, with my friend's support, they were saying, Sherry, he's just digesting it. It's tough news. Just keep moving forward. They had me moving forward. They just wanted me to stay. I guess when I look at it now, they were keeping me in life, keeping me in hope. If I had been abandoned or walked out on at that time, I probably would have killed myself. I mean, it was that horrifying. Like, to think that you could be walked out on and abandoned when you're going to, you know, with all those circumstances, it would have been the end of the road. I mean, I was 32 years old, the prime of my life, preparing to get married and have a family. So the timing in all counts was horrible because I was at an age where I... I wanted to get pregnant, and also this is the time I need to get pregnant. And so AIDS wiped me out of that. I assume your family's from New York? 
Yes. What, what happened when you told them? They were shocked. You know, I think the first thing is denial. It stunned everybody, you know, like, how could that be? They made a mistake. You know, these were the things they said. They made a mistake. Look at her. She's healthy. They don't know. My father is very macho. You know, they don't know what they're talking about. Not my daughter. I have an older brother. He didn't really talk about it. My nieces and my nephews were kind of young at that time, but I eventually sat down and told them. Um when the youngest one was in high school and the two others were in college. They even, you know, they had typical denial of, well, Aunt Sherry, you, you did drugs. I said, well, you have unprotected sex. And everybody drinks. They were drinking. A lot of people smoke pot and drink. You know, everybody wants to exclude themselves. And that's why it's so important to keep talking about it because everybody can get HIV. But it sounds like you had a pretty loving and accepting family and they... Well, yes. I mean, everybody went on with their lives. And I'm not surrounded by people who join me for an AIDS walk. And, you know, everybody went on with their lives and doing their own thing. And it's 22 years later. And, you know, their lives have gone on. I, I have support. I would say my mother has been my greatest ally because she really is that scene in Philadelphia when... Joanne Woodward, the mother, talking to Tom Hanks' character, says, how are your blood tests today, honey? And that's my mother for 22 years. How are you feeling? How's your liver? Because I have hep C, too. When one person is infected, all those that love you are affected. And that's been my experience, and it's a long road. And now my mother's 76, and I want to help her, and I'm concerned with her. And HIV has taken a toll. I've succeeded at living with it and living healthy with it, but it took a big bite out of my life. I was life interrupted, career interrupted, personal life, no children, married and divorced. My activism had to be first and foremost. The first 10 years really were about probably not going to be here very long. Let's go back to um, your fiancé was in Boston waiting for his test results. What happened when he found out? When he found out, he showed up at the altar the night before the wedding. So you, <laughs> Test results came back negative. So you continued with plans even though he hadn't called yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> My friends were pushing me. And they no were way, it's going to be okay. He's just digesting the news. So they were really... <laughs> They were supporting me. Your friends, by the way, when, when you told them, they were very cool about it. I was the first person they knew. For a long time, the only person they knew. They didn't, like, you know, stop talking to you no, or something? These, no, I want to say this. I was in recovery from alcoholism and drug addiction. So my friends were my support system in a 12-step program. Those people give you unconditional support. What they said is, you're going to be okay, Sherry. They kept saying, you're going to be okay. Doctor couldn't tell me I was going to be okay. The doctor said, take good care of your health and gave me the handshake of death. But my support system, before there was anything like a support group or the focus on living with HIV, was even an idea because people died for so long. I had that. I had friends in that fellowship some of them, I don't even know their last name, and it doesn't even matter, who told me, you're going to be okay, Sherry. 
As a result, I never had to take a drink or a drug to escape the terror that I was in. I focused on hope, one day at a time, sometimes a minute, an hour, when those early months were so terrifying to even go to sleep in. And I got through it. They said, don't give up before the miracle. It's right around the corner. We really needed a miracle, whatever that is. When when was it? That you got your first CD4 count in Varola? My first, when I, got, when I got my results, I went to the doctor. I went to an infectious uh, internist. They didn't have an infectious disease specialist for HIV yet. I had the same internist for 12 years. My first test happened, I guess, a couple of weeks after that. You know, I went right to the doctor and got a CD4 count, which was 750, which is why I had no symptoms. You know, when I put it in the context of the information that we have today, I was probably undetectable, but we didn't have that test. Uh, I was asymptomatic, so I was totally healthy. The chances of me having an uninfected baby were probably really good if I had played Russian roulette, which I wasn't willing to do because we didn't know anything. And I didn't want to infect my husband either. And, you know, we just didn't have anything. We had no data. We had nothing. Um, we were told we couldn't kiss when they told us saliva had HIV in it. I remember that. I remember telling my husband under the veil, under my wedding veil, don't kiss me. <laughs> I mean, this is the world I came out in. Did he talk to you when he, you know, t- when he said, I'm going to go through with the marriage? Did he? Yeah, we had fights, crying. I begged him, please don't leave me now. I can't handle it. I, wouldn't, I, I don't know what to do. And he kept saying, this, this is too much for me. I don't know how I can do this. I said, it's too much for me, too. And that was our bond. It was too much for both of us. So we kind of just held hands and tried to keep going. Thank God. We were starting a new life together. He was starting a new business. He basically built his business and worked, worked, worked. I focused on, you know, staying alive and healthy, and he supported me in all ways for that, financially and emotionally, you know, holistic practitioners, diets, workshops with visualization, the Louise Hay Ride, Louise Hay Hay Rides, Bernie Siegel visualizations. <laughs> These things gave me hope, and I was able to go do all that. And I had a 15-year-old stepson at home who I got to be a parent to for a couple of years and I knew that he was a gift from God because I wanted to be a mother so bad and this kid really wanted a mother so bad that we were a marriage made in heaven that partnership was a real blessing I saw it that way and and it worked it was dark times but I was looking for the light all the time and if you're looking for it you will find it because your CD4 count was so high uh-huh. um, you'd never had an uh, opportunist of infection nope, nope. And the doctor would just say in those years, too, oh, you're healthy, don't come back here for six months, because all they ever did was check your CD4 count. Do you know how you got infected? Do you suspect well, who I it was? My boyfriend in my 20s, which was through the 80s, when I was in my 20s doing a variety of drugs, you know, whatever came around, I was invincible, I was in music, I was in rock and roll. I had a boyfriend who was bisexual, and I thought that was great. You know, this is (laughs) pre-AIDS. You know, it was not uncommon in the 
It was kind of clean. I was embarrassed that I wasn't more of like a hardcore or, or even like Chrissy Hine, who was my idol. Like I'd look at Chrissy Hine and go, that's fabulous. But I was much squeakier, cleaner than that. I was really pop. The fact that Lou Reed liked me always shocked me because he was so tough and dark. And I was wearing neon petticoats made by Betsy Johnson with spandex bustiers mm-hmm. and matching gloves. So I was not funky. <laughs> I was bright. <laughs> mm-hmm. So those days were not like drug-induced like that. They were about drinking tequila, smoking pot, <laughs> you know, it was more about sex than anything else. Now that we, we got a sense of your entertainment past, let's fast forward again to Boston. While you were married, um, you you became a volunteer at Harvard Medical School? Well, I got a job. Pre and post-test counseling and um, facilitating a support group and individual counseling after giving results. Well, Pretty ha- much wore all the hats. Um, that's also when they started with clean needles, if you want to go out to the projects and start trying to do needle exchange. Although I have to say I was not feeling very safe about being in the projects with the needle exchange. And so I was not signing up for that. Like I said, I like being in counseling. I like when they come to me. You want your tests. You want to talk about the results. The study was a Harvard AIDS study um, on on an 18-month grant. The study is pretty simple. If somebody tests positive, will this addict seek treatment or relapse? In those days, seeking treatment from addiction when you're going to die of AIDS didn't really hook anybody into living. I was trying to hook them in just by example. Look, if you don't give up for the miracle, I've been living with it for five years and I'm okay. You might be okay. But, you know, that's one person doing jumping jacks in front of a community of drug addicts testing positive. So, you know, that was my job. Were most of the people who tested positive, who were they at the time? Men and women. Men show up more because women, women are enabled. Men are out there doing the crime, doing the drug deals. You know, they're, they're out there, and then they get busted, and then they go to jail. And if they're lucky, they can get to a rehab or facility or, you know, they, they, they do it different. But women find another guy. If their old man gets arrested and goes to jail, they get another guy, and they usually get the same guy, <laughs> just that he's free. Mm-hmm. And that's, we didn't see a lot of women coming in. It wasn't because they weren't infected. We always say, well, they have children at home. Part of that's true, but they were also finding another relationship to be dependent on. But given that you were still frightened of living with HIV, and you you didn't know what you know now, which is, you know, um, and you were hoping for that miracle, how was it, um, you know, spending all your days with people who are finding out, you know, the most horrific news at that moment? Well, I used to come home from work and cry. Uh Uh-huh. I mean... You know, my husband would pick me up in his BMW. I want you to have the picture. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts at this point. I'm talking to what we call townies. These are not the rich people, but Cambridge has a lot of rich people there because there are a lot of international students going to the best schools in the world. But I'm counseling the townies. My husband would come in talking about a bad day at work, and I'd say, see that woman over there? 
Her husband's in prison dying of AIDS. She has AIDS and she's dying. She needs to know where to place her two children. <laughs> you have no problem. I think that's something a lot of people forget at the time was how important it was to to find guardians for your children if you were guardians positive. for your children, and then your children have AIDS and they have no treatment. And I used to go, I was so heartbroken that I didn't have children, and I loved the children so much. I was in my 30s. I was so primed to be a mommy, and I was always dreaming. I'm a girl who grew up playing with a bassinet and a dolly. I dreamed of the day I could have a baby. When I first got my period, I thought, oh, boy, I can get pregnant. I mean, I was, this was really... This was for me. I would go to the pediatric AIDS wards. We don't have that either, like what we had then, because people weren't picking up the babies. And of course, they found that if you went and you picked up a baby and gave it some TLC during the day or night, it would actually gain weight and flourish maybe a little longer. Medications were not child-friendly. They didn't know what they were doing. It was still experimental. Babies were really having diarrhea, couldn't handle the toxins. It was just a disaster. There's not that many children that lived from those days. I know one young woman out here, she's 25 years old. She's had it for 25 years. Tell me about your marriage at that point. Well, my marriage was never the one that I pictured. It didn't include sex. You didn't know how to have safe sex. I, I, no, we, we kind of knew, but it was, you know, condoms were odd. You know, my husband was seven years older than me, and he really was a child of the 60s and free. I mean, he didn't even wear underpants, let alone a condom. condom you know, everybody was so free. You know, we're coming out of sexual liberation, and all of a sudden, you know, someone's saying, put a glove on it. So that wasn't a comfortable thing. But it was more uncomfortable having sex because you couldn't get that trauma out of your brain. It's a trauma. It's not like you could get relaxed and go, well, you know, so I had the virus. Like a friend of mine once said, well, it's not a date maker, Sherry. Forget a date maker. It's really hard to feel sexy. For me, it was so hard to feel anything. He was trying to be a good guy, a real guy about, you know, coming down, coming and wrapping himself in saran wrap and making himself cute and funny, and I would say, just get away from me. I don't want, I just felt really bad, and I felt like he made a very bad deal. He signed up for a happy life with children, and it's not like we were old couple that were moving on to old age and committed and going to take care of each other in old age. We were new. We only knew each other a few months, and we were young. All of a sudden, he wasn't going to have children. I was going to be a dependency instead of flourish in a career like I was coming in with. When he met me, I had an agent. I was auditioning in New York to be in musical theater. I had just landed a runner-up for an off-Broadway show. It was called Beehive. And everything fell apart. Not just my personal life, but the career was like, wow, I can't do a show. I'll be getting sick on stage, you know, because we didn't know. I thought, you're going to drop dead any minute. You're going to get sick right away. <laughs> so everything changed. When you split up, wh where did you go? I 
I stayed in Cambridge because my doctor was there and my support system with my friends were there. I also had a new career. I had a job at Harvard. When that job ended, because the grant comes to an end, I went right away to another group um, and started facilitating an, an, an HIV support group, but there was nobody ever showed up in these HIV support groups. If you got three people and then one person would die, then the next week nobody came back. Mm-hmm. They were really horrible jobs. You know, before protease inhibitors, that's what that was. It was so depressing, right? So depressing. I kept coming home saying, I'm not having any fun. I'm a giggly, fun person. I was. <laughs> and I used to come home going, I'm not having any fun. I hate my job. It wasn't even about hating my job. It was hating the experience of this constant having a red ribbon on another piece of black clothing, burying another young person. I never met someone who deserved to die like this, ever. I've met some hardened criminals, some tough guys who've done some pretty tough stuff, but they were never bad enough. It was just, it was just, it's, it was criminal. AIDS was a holocaust. It was a constant tsunami. It was the plane that flew through the World Trade Center every goddamn day. People don't realize. That's the, when, that, when, when the horrors of 9-11 happened, I went through the emotions that I felt back then with HIV. It was like, wow, everybody rallied for this. But when I was watching this happen to all these people, nobody said anything. Except for the gay community marching in the streets and a bunch of their friends like myself. Did you uh, march in the streets at that point? I started doing the first AIDS walks. Mm-hmm. In I Boston? Wasn't, I used to hear ACT UP next to my, you know, in the community center where I was counseling or tr- waiting for people to show up in a support group. I would hear packed rooms of screaming men, mostly men. I mean, I'm sure there were some women in there, but I didn't, I was so overwhelmed. I can't say that I saw any. What you did see were, and hear, were men's voices rallying. Which, you know, it was a little overwhelming, to say the least. Uh-huh. And not like a tough girl. Like I said, I was a girl who was wearing a petticoat and a bustier. Mm-hmm. I certainly got my combat boots on after a while. I had to go from, you know, poof, poof, high heel slippers to combat boot mentality because this was a war. When you separated from your husband, um, did you start to date? I didn't start to date. I'll tell you, part of this was I separated from my husband at the same time that my beloved father passed away. It came together because when my dad died and I was with him to his last breath, I found my sea legs. I thought if I could bear this loss, then I will have the strength to leave my unhappy marriage, which it was. That's when I left my husband. He didn't leave me. He would have never left me. He would have soldiered on. That's when I thought, this is it. This is the end of the road. So I was grief-stricken. I was grieving my dad, grieving the loss of my marriage and the idea of what it was going to be, that it never could be. 
A few weeks later, you know, I started looking around. I did meet someone, and we went out on a date, and it was attraction right away. I didn't have sex with him, I don't know, it was probably a couple of weeks, and I kept sending him home, which was kind of weird for two adults <laughs> that were like heavy, heavy petting and going, okay, good night, bye-bye. <laughs> And I thought, he must think I'm a wacko. I had to have the uncomfortable discussion of, hey, this is the 90s. You have to use protection. And have you ever had an AIDS test? I really did that. <laughs> he said, oh, sure, I'm all about protection. So he acted like that's not a problem. So that was good. And then um, he said, oh, yeah, I had an AIDS test. It was negative. Now, I always say I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he said. But it left me the opportunity to say I had an AIDS test, but I wasn't quite that lucky. This conversation happened over the telephone. It was the best I could do. It was a dead silence. It felt like an hour, but it was probably just a minute. And then he said, I still want to be with you and get to know you. And that's exactly what happened. He became my live-in boyfriend for the next seven years. So that was my only dating experience. From that moment on, there was... Everything turned in my life for the better. I felt like I was a part of life again because now I was actually in a sexual relationship. He got himself AIDS educated. I wasn't going to play mommy and teach him everything. He went and he got his own AIDS education, and it was great. My work was growing and growing, and he was also a creative person like myself. He worked in production and sound and music, and I was still a singer and a speaker. Now I was an AIDS speaker, speaking out. I'm a total AIDS activist now. I'm speaking in classrooms. I'm speaking at the State House in Boston with Mayor Menino. For the 10th anniversary of my own diagnosis and of AIDS, I wrote my one-woman show. I put it in a theater in Boston, the ICA Theater. It was a musical. I showed my films from the old days. I told my story in a comical way. I had some clients there who told their stories. We held it in the theater for three weeks and gave some of the proceeds to local AIDS organizations. That was a great 10th anniversary. <laughs> what a celebration. At that point, the 10th anniversary, did you have, had you already started meds? Nope. nope. What was your CD4 count after 10 My years? My CD4 count stayed in the 500, 600 zone for the 10 years. Uh. I did holistic therapies, wheatgrass, acupuncture, Chinese herbs. Weekly went for these things, very committed to it like religion. But I learned not to, you know, I didn't do these things without professional help, holistic practitioners. I didn't like go, oh, I read this and pop that because drug, vitamins can be very toxic. Now, mind you, doctors were still saying things and clinical trials were happening and vaccine trials, all kinds of stuff. I was always being recruited. I always said less is more, total program stuff, total 12-step program stuff. Less is more. If it's not broken, don't fix it. I'm not broken. They were pushing drugs then. So I stayed off of that and stayed holistic, and I had the luxury of good health, so I could do that. I think that's what has saved my immune system today because by the time I needed medication, when my T-cells finally dropped in 1997, they went to 230, and I felt lousy for the first time, and I also got scared again. 
the first time. But my prayers were answered because medications, cocktail, the combination therapies, I don't want to say cocktail, uh, were available and effective for me. So I started therapies in 1997, and my viral load went undetectable in a matter of weeks, and my T-cells went back to the 700s in a matter of weeks. The symptoms that I had, which were shingles, fatigue, and a severe rash that I had seen my friend Lori have years earlier, they all disappeared. Did you have side effects from the medication? I did well with the medication. I didn't feel any kind of like diarrhea or the things people or headaches or neuropathy. What I did come to notice a few months down the road was lipodystrophy and lipoatrophy. We didn't have those names yet. <laughs> but, you know, I was looking at my arms going, and I'm pretty well-balanced body. It's kind of a gym body. I lift weights. Everything's kind of proportioned well. And all of a sudden, my arms were bony and skinny, and my breast and my belly had just blown up. My legs had gotten thin, and I had muscular legs. My face, even though I've always had high cheekbones, it was getting really narrow, and there was no fat in my face. I took a Virocept, 3TC, and D40. Sera and Epivir and Virocept I took. And, of course, those two were removed, never to be seen again, because they believed that that was part of the problem with the, part of the, problem with the lipodystrophy and lipoatrophies. Today, my body isn't suffering that way. It, it has returned to a much healthier balance. I still believe in diet and exercise as being extremely helpful. You know, I believe you have to participate in the solution and not wait for somebody to hand you the answer in a pill or a shot. It's just, you know, you have to do the best you can at bringing a principle of your own work there. Uh, and what's your CD4 count now? 1,200. Wow. So, and Higher than it was <laughs> 22 years ago. Um, and you're currently living in uh, Los Angeles? Yeah, Hollywood, actually. I hear you're writing a book? I am. That's cool. About your experience? Because I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't really meet a lot of people with my story, not women, my age, my length of living with HIV, the length of time. Of course, my own experience, everybody has their own personal experience. I've heard many wonderful stories, powerful stories. But I need to do this. I need to do this simply because people have told me I need to do it. They told me 10 years ago. And I said, I don't want to write a book. And what's the big deal? I just wanted to do the play. And I wrote the play instead of the book I was told to write 10 years ago. So now I think I'll try to write the book because now it's 10 more years of experience. And, and these, ten, these 10 years have been very challenging. These are 10 years of medication, 10 years of aging now, or about aging and HIV. I mean, just this weekend, I'll be going to a, a health summit for 50-plus. And I've been asked to speak on panels at several of these over the last couple of years, and I'm always the only woman on the panel because there's not a lot of 50-somethings. There's, so, there's quite a few 40s. People, women in their 40s now, people living 10, 12, even 15 years. But, you know, my peers are these guys that are left 
from those early ACT updates. Before I close, I wanted to ask a little bit about um, your spiritual um, practice. Um, I understand you're active in a synagogue? I am active in a synagogue. It's called Kola Me in West Hollywood. The reason that I really embrace, love this synagogue is because they, they, the rabbi, um, even on Yom Kippur and the High Holy Services, they always mention those that are sick and suffering from AIDS. They're specific. They don't just say illness. Nobody's covering this up. Um, it embraces the gay community, which, you know, has had so much of the AIDS burden on their shoulders. They have an HIV support group there for Jewish people who have HIV. It's comforting to know that if I ever got sick and needed to be in a hospital, which, you know, even as I grow older, that will happen, that I'm also going to have a rabbi who can honor what my journey has been with HIV as well. That's very important. And I started this back in Boston. I, I was also a member of a, of a reformed temple in Brookline, Ahobe Shalom, which that was my, the prerequisite for me joining, saying, well, if you have more awareness about HIV, I'd be happy to join your synagogue. We had an HIV education weekend. I didn't even know there was a Jewish AIDS quilt, but there was, and they brought it into the temple for the weekend. Uh, and going to, and going to the synagogue does it does it help you having that connection with God? I mean, is that a very strong part of your surviving? Do you think? I feel it. Just the word "survivor" resonates being a Jew, because you know I had said earlier in the interview the Holocaust. You know, the the modern Holocaust has been AIDS. As a Jewish person, my father passed that to me as. You're a survivor, Sherry. Even though I don't directly know any any family members from from a concentration camp, all Jews are descendants of each other. So I am a survivor, and I am a survivor of HIV. So that plays that plays a very big part. I do feel the power of prayer in the community of my religion. I respect the community that people go to, whether it's an agape, positive thinking, because that helped me tremendously, the Louise Hay, all that, you know, which is so embraced now with, you know, the new marketing of it as the secret. All of those things are extremely helpful. How do you make a living now? Like, what's your full-time job? Well, I still speak publicly. Uh-huh. I, I have a small column. I wouldn't say it makes a living right now. I have a column in ANU Magazine called One Voice. In that column, I focus on the stories of women living with HIV or involved in AIDS activism. I have been a counselor up until less than a year ago, still working for an organization called Women at Risk, no longer working with them and doing my own speaking engagements, and life coaching, which basically is counseling, but helping people get on with the present parts of their lives, not just the grief of HIV, and not even necessarily HIV-specific, but just getting on with the business of living. Sounds like you have a lot to offer somebody who's facing a challenge. I was wondering if you could answer one final question. What advice would you give to somebody who who just found out they were HIV positive? I would say, if they just found out, find a local phone number for a place to speak to a peer. There's nothing like peer 
counseling. One person with HIV talking to another. If it's a woman, find a woman. If it's a man, find a man. Just that same thing. That's a good start. If you have prayer in your life and a belief in a God of your own understanding, if it's Jesus or Buddha or the positive source, uh, use that like your life depended on it because it will only enhance your life. You have nothing to lose, only to gain. I didn't give up before the miracle and the miracle showed up. My health is my miracle. The medications that were effective for me are the miracle. That's the source of spirituality that worked through me to get to the place that I am today with that. So I would suggest that to anybody. Great advice. Thank you, Sherry, for a great interview and very inspiring recounting of your life. Thank you for inviting me to share that. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. Thanks for listening to This Positive Life. For more podcasts and other first-person stories, please visit us online at thebody.com. If you'd like to share your story, please email us at podcast at thebody.com. <laughs>